Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Marcy is a travel nurse. Marcy had gone into missions or had planned to go into missions earlier in her life. She had spent a lot of time preparing to go into missions. She had gone to a conference in college. She had come to Christ. She had heard about the great need that there is, especially in what's called the 1040 window, block of your map, where there is very little knowledge of Christ. The gospel's not heard there. And so she had gone into nursing, partly because she had an interest in it, and partly because she wanted to get into one of these countries that usually wouldn't allow missionaries in. So she had done that in college. She had graduated. But then she had decided, through a series of events, that she would first do some travel nursing, get some experience before she went overseas. Well, she traveled, moved away from home and college, after college, as a registered nurse in another state, and she began working. She had every intention of plugging into a solid church, but Marcy found that where she moved in a rural location, there were not very many good churches. There were just a few churches in town, and none of them she seemed to really click with. And so she found one that she kind of started going to, but her nursing schedule was demanding anyway, so it was really only maybe once or twice a month. She would come on a Sunday morning to this church, learn a little bit, but she didn't connect with any of the people there. There were not a lot of people there. So most of Marcy's time was spent at work and then eventually with coworkers. What Marcy found is that she had some great coworkers. They didn't know Christ, but they were kind. They welcomed her in. They started going to movies together, hanging out together. They started spending quite a lot of time together. Of course, because she had an interest in missions, she was very much aware that at present this was her mission field, but she delayed sharing the gospel with them, partly because she looked at her own life and thought, I'm not really living the exemplar Christian life. I hardly go to church. And partly because she looked at her coworkers and thought, they seem so happy, even as non-Christians, who am I to intrude? So she was trying so hard as months went by to work up the courage to share the gospel with her coworkers. But you understand how it is. As time goes by, it just gets more awkward to bring up the topic. And so Marcy had very few believers in her life. More than that, she had very many unbelieving coworkers but she stopped seeing them as her mission field. She started seeing them more just as her support group. They were the people she turned to when she was struggling. They were the people who seemed to have answers very often more than she did. Now as she thinks at home alone by herself, this travel nurse, her desire for missions overseas is diminishing quite a bit. She's not even sure what to think about Christianity, at least how she thought about it before. She doesn't have as much of a zeal or an energy to go reach people over there. She doesn't even feel that zeal to reach people right here. She starts to think, do they even really need Christ? Maybe the beliefs that they have are enough that when they die, they'll be right with a higher power. Maybe it's just an awkward intrusion for her to even bring Christ into this. She sits there at home alone, very confused not sure what to do, feeling quite guilty about it all, is there hope for Marcy? This class has been an attempt at an answer. 
that very question, is there hope for Marcy or for any of us who deal with any temptations quite like Marcy or any of these made-up people have? I want to give an answer to that by focusing on one attribute. As you remember, an attribute is just something that's true about God. We focus one by one on them, not because they're all separate in God, but just because we can only focus on one at a time. We're very limited. And so we're focusing just in on one attribute of God today. We'll come at the end after we've talked about what the Bible says of this attribute and apply it to Marcy and ourselves. But let's begin by focusing on this attribute. And today this is the wrath of God. I'm going to start with a definition like we always do, give you a few proof texts to demonstrate this really is the biblical teaching, and then we'll go into more of an explanation. So let's just start with a definition. When you hear wrath of God, what do you think that means? Let me give you the definition that Wayne Grudem gives. I think this is a good one. It's simple. He says, God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Just a few early remarks on that. Notice, he intensely hates. When you hear wrath, you probably get that sense that we're not talking about some cold, sterile, objective observation of God. I disapprove, but instead, it's something intense. He intensely hates. Even hate is a very strong word. Well, wrath conveys that sense. Hatred. It would be similar to our emotion of disgust. That's what we're talking about when we talk of the wrath of God. It's interesting, too. He intensely hates all sin. You might, again, like we've talked about before with other of God's attributes, say, what relationship does this have to emotion? We experience emotion. So is the wrath of God, are we talking mainly about an emotion that God feels? And let me just remind you, this is where we'll leave it on God's emotions. God has emotions, but you shouldn't think of them as the same as your emotions. Your emotions are tied even to your physical body, and God doesn't have a physical body. So a a surgeon could take some kind of electrode, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but you do maybe, and zap parts of your brain and you would experience certain emotions. God doesn't have a physical brain that you can affect in that way. Or you could be digesting your lunch and feel depressed or something. So your physical body affects your emotion. Now that's true in anger. When we talk about wrath or anger, because your anger, often it's something that, you know the feeling, it starts here and it starts working up and it becomes a physical thing. Your face gets red. Now your face getting red, it's not causing the anger per se, but once it is red, it keeps the anger going. The Bible even recognizes this because in the Old Testament, when we talk about God being slow to anger, the Hebrew, the original language, almost every time, maybe every time you read that in your English Bible, God is slow to anger, the expression is literally that God is long of nose. I think that's a very shocking thing to say of God. It's not derogatory at all. What it means is, the best we can tell of the idea is you get angry, your face starts to get red, and in the Hebrew way of thinking of it, your face is getting red all the way until it reaches the end of your nose. So if God is long of nose, it just means that that emotion of anger takes longer to fully attain whatever it's going to be. 
It's not saying God has a nose, but it's a way of speaking that we understand because we have emotion. But we always want to separate out God's emotion. It's an analogy to ours. It's analogical. It's in some way related to ours so we can understand something about it, but it's not the same thing. As a side note, a lot of the discussion about God's emotion in the last 2,000 years, and there's been a lot of discussion about it, oftentimes people push back against the thought of God having any emotion because they're trying to avoid us thinking of God the way you think of an angry dad or some person who loses control. They get red in the face. They have no control. It's like their anger leads them to do rash things. We should never think of God that way. He's not led along by some physical body in the way that we are. He has perfect control over this, but we should, I think, because the Bible presents it this way, not separate God's emotions so far from ours that it's just him cold, sterile in the heavens, no feeling at all. The Bible wants, invites you to think of God as having emotion. Just be aware it's different from yours. So I just want to make that clarification when we define this wrath of God. Is it an emotion? Well, in some ways, yes, but maybe not the way you think of emotion, but in some ways it certainly is. But Grudem's definition, God's wrath means he intensely hates, that includes emotion, intensely hates all sin. I want to do something a little different than we've done in the past because this is such a controversial doctrine and a difficult doctrine, I want to now give you not just one proof text that shows that this is true, like I usually do. I want to give you a collection of verses that all talk about the wrath of God, some in the Old Testament, some in the New. Basically, what I'm wanting to do is, before we get into a real deep explanation, I just want to get you comfortable with the thought that the Bible really does teach this. Our culture does not like this and does not teach this. Our culture will teach the love of God, and that's true and right and good. We've seen that. But this is a doctrine our culture hates very much. Maybe the only time you encounter this is like I did in high school, uh, public high school, when we talked about the Puritans in U.S. history, <laughs> and we read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right next to the play, The Crucible, about the Salem witch trials. And the idea was that the Puritans talked all about the wrath of God and hell. That's what they were all about. And aren't we glad we moved past that? <laughs> so you'll get a characterization. Uh, also, to be fair, in modern day, the only way that usually in the secular world people encounter the wrath of God is something like a Westboro Baptist church, a very horrible church that goes out and pickets, when soldiers die or do shocking things and talk about the wrath of God. So for all those reasons, because that's the way it's presented out there, I want to spend a little time showing you from the Bible itself that the wrath of God is there, not just a few times, but it's there often. Then we're going to talk about in more explanation what this wrath is. So we're going to start in Psalm 2. So you may want to open there. We'll read actually a good bit of Psalm chapter 2. So let's start here in the Old Testament. And just bear in mind that what we read in Psalm 2, this is a true picture of God. So whatever Psalm 2 tells us about God is true about God. So let me start by reading the first six verses here. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now here's the presentation of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Let me make a few remarks. We'll get into explanation in a second. Just a few remarks. Hopefully you see this. Do you see a picture of God as wrathful in this psalm? And the God of the Old Testament, not different than the God of the New. We'll talk about that. Let me just point out what Psalm 2 helps us to see right away that we'll see more of is notice that God's wrath is a response on God's part. Differs from God's love, which just flows out toward all creation, sort of automatically from his being. But notice his wrath. It's a response. In this case, it's a response to the nations raging and to the kings of the earth, the Gentile rulers gathering together saying, let's cast his bonds apart, which was seen in the Old Testament when the Gentiles wanted to rebel against Israel's rule. They say, let's cast the bonds apart. We don't want God to rule over us. And notice that once we get to God, it's him responding to human sin. Our definition, God intensely hates, not period, it's God intensely hates all sin. So we'll see more of that. Notice as well that in Psalm 2, this is presented as though it's just something you should assume is right. So here are people on earth rebelling against God's authority. What sort of response do you think God should have? Should God be in heaven and not care? Should God be in heaven and enjoy people rebelling and ruining their lives? Should God be in heaven and delight in that? No, you know that God's response should be one that's negative, at least. Maybe you think his wrath is too strong. We'll get to that. But it should be negative. And so God's response is he laughs, holds them in derision. He's a great king. He's not worried about it. And he terrifies them in his wrath. So notice it's a response to sin, and we're starting to see it is an appropriate response. I want to point out verse 12 before we move on, because there have been many people, and many today, and in history and today, who have tried to separate out the wrathful God of the Old Testament from the gracious, loving God of the New Testament. It's not true. It's read Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, some of the most wrathful, violent imagery about God and Jesus are in Revelation, anywhere in the Bible. So this is not, we can't separate out wrathful God, Old Testament, gracious God, New Testament, Jesus, he's nice, God in Old Testament, wrathful. Look at verse 12. Kiss the son. Originally a reference to the king of Israel, but prophetically is pointing to Jesus. Kiss the sun. So he's talking to these rulers who are rebelling. No, no, no. Kiss the sun. You know, bend your knees, submit to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now we're not talking about the Father God here. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son. 
Submit to him. And notice it says, if you don't, in this context, his wrath is quickly kindled. Of course, so often the Old Testament praises God that he's long of nose, that he's slow to anger. But in this context, there's a warning that don't think he just delays forever. Don't think Jesus is just a pushover and he's never going to judge anyone. He's going to judge and his wrath may be quickly kindled. It's a fearful thing. It's presented that way. And it is, in this case, Jesus the Son. So even there you have that. So hopefully you're getting introduced to this idea of the wrath of God. Let me give you one more Old Testament passage. If you want to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 9. or Yeah, chapter 9. And we are looking here at chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. Moses says, remember to Israel, remember and don't forget. (laughs) It's the same thing, right? Remember and don't forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you've come to this place, you've been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given, you provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. So that event is recorded in Exodus 32 and it's where God had brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, ten plagues, brings them out of slavery Juneteenth, that's something we're celebrating today, brings them out of slavery and brings them to Mount Sinai, makes a covenant with them. I will be your people. You will be my God. They say, we will. Moses goes up on the mountain and then what happens? (laughs) They say, well, I don't know what happened to Moses. So they make an idol. Like seriously, wow. It's like the first of the Ten Commandments don't do that. And they did it first and second. So Moses comes down angry, throws the breaks the Ten Commandments. But before Moses came down, God told Moses, look, look what they did. Like we just made this covenant. And God told Moses, get out of my way. That's what he told him. Get out of my way. I'm going down to destroy that whole nation, all of Israel. Because the covenant was, I'll be your God and you keep my commandments. So they broke it. So he has every right. He can come down, destroy And if you remember, Moses has to intercede as a picture of Jesus. He steps in the gap and he says, please don't destroy them and appeases God's wrath. So he reminds them of that wrath. Remember and don't forget how you provoke the Lord. And he says, you provoke the Lord, not just on Sinai, but if you read the story, going to Sinai, they grumbled. Going from Sinai, they grumbled. Going into the promised land, they grumbled. (laughs) Sent away from the promised land, they grumbled. Grumbled on their way back. Grumbled on in. Grumbled as they took out the nation. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You know, that's the whole story of them. And what we see then is sin on their part. We're not talking about the Gentile nations now. We're talking about God's covenant people, Israel. Sin on their part and God's response. It wasn't God brought them out and just capriciously said, Oh, I hate you. Boom. It's They build an idol, refuse and reject God, grumble. He responds wrathfully. So again, there's this idea of response. The one other thing I want to point out is that we see God's wrath expressed in the Old Testament universally. He doesn't have favorites. 
he chose Israel as his own people, but notice it almost intensifies his wrath because there's now a jealous component. You are my people. So you see in Psalm 2, God's wrath against the nations who reject him, who sin. And you see God is willing to be wrathful against even his own people in this case, covenant people, I should say here. And he's wrathful toward them as well. This is something that Paul brings out in Romans in the New Testament. So God is not one to show partiality. I don't care if you're religious or not religious. I don't care if you're in a Christian nation or a Muslim nation or a Hindu nation. I don't care if you go to church every week or you don't. If you don't have a Moses figure interceding, if you don't have someone to appease the wrath, God's wrath comes on you for your sin. So hopefully you're just starting to get the contours of the wrath of God. It's his right response. It is a response. It's universally given toward all sin, Grudem says. Now let me give you two quick passages from the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 36. Everyone in here knows John 3, 16, about God's love. God so loved the world. So this is in the exact same setting. Jesus is speaking. He said, John 3, 16, Jesus did. And Jesus says in verse 36 this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, kiss the Son, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains suggests the wrath is already there. From the time of our birth, because of Adam's fall, we have sin. God has a wrath toward us, rightly. And Jesus, who said, God so loved the world, he sent his Son, yes. He also is not at all ashamed. He doesn't shirk away from him. He says the opposite as well. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't obey the Son, God's wrath stays on you. That's Jesus, by the way, New Testament. Let me give you one last one. Revelation 6, at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 6, we're in verses 16 and 17. This is John looking forward and seeing what will happen in the future. And those who reject the Son, they will be calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Okay, hide us from God, his wrath, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I hope you see something of the irony when he says the wrath of the Lamb. I don't know... A, a physical lamb, I don't know how wrathful they can get. You know, they're very small and don't seem very aggressive. That's the idea of a lamb. And yet, the Bible presents Jesus. He is a lamb. He's also a lion. That he's also not safe. And here you have, therefore, the wrath of the lamb. And those who are calling out on the mountains to fall on them, they're terrified of the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of Jesus. Not merely the wrath of the Old Testament God. They're terrified of the wrath of Jesus, the Jesus that we celebrate and worship came 2,000 years ago, touched lepers, merciful, gracious, same Jesus, but notice there is also a wrath of the Lamb. And that's what terrifies them. 
And notice, lastly here, for the great day of the wrath has come. This is a theme you can find throughout Old and New Testament. It's very consistent that there is a last day that is coming. It is a day of judgment, and it is very often called the day of wrath. Because it is a day when God will finally, he's been holding back. So many evil, horrible things happen in this world, are happening today, happen all the time. People say, where's God? Well, God is there being patient like a, like a dam that's holding back a flood. When the day of wrath comes is when the dam breaks. It's when God finally, no more patience, pours out his wrath on earth. And anyone not found in the lamb, anyone who's not kissed the son, anyone who's not had this Moses-like intercessor, anyone who's not trusted in Jesus absorbing wrath on the cross, they experience God's wrath. And that's how he makes the world new. That's how he fully judges because he's a just judge. So it's a day of wrath. So I know that's more than just a proof text there, but I just wanted to introduce you to the biblical concept of the wrath of God. Hopefully you're starting to get a, a feel for, number one, that this is not taught only in like one verse of the Bible, that this is a rather consistent teaching about God, even if our culture today leans away from it. And number two, a few of the details about it. It's God's response to sin and so forth. So with that basis, let's do a little more of an explanation of the wrath of God. I've already given you that basic definition. It means God intensely hates all sin. And if you walk out from here just knowing that, you're good. But I do want to give you some clarifications as always. Let me just start and you've maybe felt this, by acknowledging that this is a difficult doctrine. This is not one we put on our plaques on our walls, and that's probably right of us not to do that. This is a difficult doctrine, but let me give you a bit of a, I don't know what we'd call it. It's, it's A.W. Pink, so it's usually a punch in the face. That's all that he does, really. But a bit of a correction, if I may. He acknowledges the same thing, and he says it this way in The Attributes of God. He says, it is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology. You ever feel that way? Or who at least wish there was no such thing. While some who would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they're far from regarding it, he says, with delight. I don't know if that's appropriate, maybe. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there's a severity about the divine wrath that makes it too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with his goodness, and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. If we're honest, sometimes we think these things, even if Pink puts it so strongly. It's sad. <laughs> it is sad. But sometimes the wrath of God, it can be a difficult doctrine. We'll talk about in just a second, there's some healthy ways that this should be a difficult doctrine. We'll talk about that. But the first thing I want to say about the wrath of God and a key takeaway about God's wrath in the Bible is that God's wrath is right. 
it is the most right. And when you look at the Bible and you see evidences of God's wrath and you think, oh, that's too strong, you're wrong. You're wrong. God was right. When God judges, when God puts Aaron's sons to death, you go, oh, wow, God was right. When God struck Uzzah for touching the ark so it wouldn't fall in the dirt, and David was angry. Why'd you kill Uzzah? God was right. David was wrong. I remember one time I was listening to a sermon, and I don't remember who was preaching it or where. I just sometimes I'll listen to sermons locally or wherever. And I had come across one, and the person, he was preaching, and he talked about the wrath of God in the Old Testament. And he was talking about how God was wrathful toward Israel. And he said, you know what it's like? It's like sometimes you're in the grocery store and you'll see a mom and her kids are going berserk and she's doing everything she can to keep them in line and finally she's had enough and she just explodes on them. That's what God in the Old Testament was like. <laughs> it's like, oh no, <laughs> that is sad. That's very bad. That's wrong. That's super wrong. He's wrong. God is not overreacting at all. The first thing we need to fix in our minds, even if it doesn't make sense to us in all cases, God's wrath is right. It should not be any other way. If you want a very practical application of this, just think of the doctrine of hell. Hell is a difficult doctrine. If you really think about it, it's almost overwhelming. It's almost difficult even to imagine, even to think of it. And there's some ways in which that's appropriate because we love people. But we have to acknowledge this. We have to drill this into our mind. Hell is not an embarrassment. We don't have to apologize for hell. We don't have to explain hell away. You know who taught the doctrine of hell more than anyone else in the Bible? It was Jesus himself. He did most of the teaching on hell. Hell is right. It is not an overreaction. It's not too much punishment for just a little sin. It's not. When we feel like God's wrath is too strong and too severe. What it demonstrates is not that God is too, too wrathful. It demonstrates that we think too little of sin. That's the whole issue. If you could understand the real nature of your sin, you would say, hell is right. Anything less would be completely wrong. The thing is that God understands the true nature of our sin. It's not like foibles. It's not the euphemisms we make, even when we say like, and you can say this, okay, but even when we say like, oh man, I fell into sin, <laughs> like, like, oh, oops, oh, you know, no, like you contemplated it, you made that decision, here's God's law, here's, here's what you want to do, you decide, I don't care what God says, I'm just going to do my own thing, I don't care, and you do it in his face, that's sin, so we make euphemisms, it's mistakes to err as human, to forgive divine. We make the euphemisms, but God sees with clear eyes, and our sin is not small. Our sin is the most massive evil. Our sin, any sin, it's the most massive evil. We like to distinguish them and say like, oh, the bad people are like Hitler. Well, certainly, but our sin is on the same level of evil. It's not to the same degree, but it's the same genre. Like John Owen said, every sin wants to be Hitler. Every sin you commit wants to be Hitler. Every sin wants to be the worst of its kind, if God doesn't restrain it. So that's the first thing we need to say about wrath, is that God's wrath, it is right. It is a proper moral response on the part of God to sin. 
So if you just think about it, there was no demonstration of God's wrath before creation. In eternity past, no wrath was demonstrated at all. The gems of it, or the germs of it, what would be, demonst- what would be shown as wrath after creation were there. God didn't change, but there was no reason for God to be wrathful then. God's wrath is a response. Another reason we struggle, talking about God's wrath being right, another reason we really struggle with the wrath of God is because you and I, our wrath is usually bad. The reason for this is because when we get angry, sometimes we get angry at what we should be angry at. If you hear about sex trafficking, which is very much alive today, even in Evansville, when you hear about that, that should make you angry. That is a moral outrage, preying upon the weak. That is evil. You should feel anger toward that. And when you do, it's not wrong. But here's the thing with our anger. Most of our anger is not about the right things, or it's not to the right degree. Usually our anger is about inconveniences. So here's an example I think of. For example, I remember we had a huge limb going over our driveway and I wanted to cut this huge limb because it was touching our house. It was messing up our roof. So I need to cut it. But I mean, it's a thick one, you know, thick. And it's 15 feet up. So I'm thinking, how am I going to cut that? Maybe 20, I don't know. It's way up there. So I'm Googling, how do I cut this limb? What do I do here? And so my first attempt was to just take one of those um, oh, pruning, pruning saws on the extendable pole. And I stood, never do it, never do it, but I did it. Stood on the very top of a ladder with it fully extended, just trying to cut this thing. So I'm working on that. And you've got the little wooden handle for the lopper, you know. And so I'm, I'm trying to do that, trying to do that. That thing's swinging around and... It's very dangerous, and it's really not cutting much, but it's a little bit. So I do a little, a little. I'm exhausted. I don't have a ton of upper body strength, you might notice. So I'm trying so hard to cut it, and then I'm succeeding enough that that branch, as I cut it, starts to bend down. Nobody told me that pins the blade in there. (laughs) So now my blade is stuck, and the pole's just hanging there, and I can't move it. So I go, what am I supposed to do here? (laughs) And as I'm working on that, I'm swinging it, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. That little wooden handle for the lopper, it's on a rope that comes all the way down, is swinging around, and I turn just in time for it to deck me right in my face. And I'll tell you, I was angry. (laughs) But that's not an appropriate anger. What am I angry at? Myself? The, The physical object? God? Literally, I thought, God, you're sovereign. Why would you let that hit my face? That is what I thought. So then I got... This is irrelevant, but it's interesting. Then I got one of those pocket chainsaws, and I tied ropes on both ends. So I got that thing out, and I had to throw one side of it, one rope of it, on the other side. And then you just go like this, encountered the same problem. It got stuck. But trying to get it up there, I tie a water bottle on one end of the rope to throw it over. And what are the chances I throw it up, and it hits the tree? It literally untwists the cap, and the water sprays on me on this ladder that I'm standing on. Anyways, I was angry. (laughs) I was upset. Now, was I angry with God's anger at the moral outrage of how dare that water bottle, that non-sentient water bottle hate me so much? What am I going to be angry at? Most of our anger is of that nature. That was simply inconvenient. It was my own fault. And it was simply an inconvenience. 
Most of our anger is like that. Sometimes, so it's at the wrong things or to the wrong degree. Your road rage, your road rage. Let's talk about your road rage. You know it's wrong. And you might say, well, it's not totally wrong because that person did a morally wrong thing in merging in front of me, you know, or skipping around me. Yeah, but that's enough for maybe that much anger and you're feeling that much anger. So another reason it's hard for us to think of God's wrath as right is because we compare it to our own. Like that guy in the sermon, God just exploded. Well, you would explode. God never explodes like that. God's wrath is a perfect, proper, moral response to all sin. And it's always to the degree it needs to be that's exactly correct. And it's always at the right things. This is why, for example, when Jesus came to earth, everyone's expectation was that Jesus would come, side with the Pharisees, and hate these low-life prostitutes and tax collectors who were explicitly rejecting God. Surely, Jesus would say, good job, Pharisees. Those guys are terrible. Let's get rid of them. Or at least the Romans. Those guys are horrible. Imperialist monsters. Let's get rid of them. When Jesus came, he turned against the Pharisees, those who were morally upright. And he was compassionate. He called out the sin of the the tax collectors and prostitutes, but he was compassionate to them. Why was it so shockingly reversed what was expected? Because the Pharisees' anger toward those low lives was only partly righteous. Most of it was a matter of convenience. What they hated the most in the tax collectors and prostitutes was not really that they disobeyed God, because they also did. It was that they disobeyed them. (laughs) They wouldn't listen to the religious leadership. So Jesus could see things clearly, and his wrath was correct. It was right. So the first thing that we have to acknowledge about God's wrath in the Bible is that God's wrath is right. Ours is not. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James 1.20 says. God's is. Here's John Murray in Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He said, the wrath of God is the inevitable reaction of the divine holiness against sin. Sin is the contradiction of the perfection of God, and he cannot but recoil against that which is the contradiction of himself. God's wrath is right. Let me make one more comment before we close this explanation. Now, why is it that we feel so uncomfortable with God's wrath? Part of it's because we misunderstand it. Another part of it is because... God's wrath, I don't know what you want to call this. Theologians use different words. I'm going to use the words I'm borrowing from Dane Ortland. If you've read his book, Gentle and Lowly, popular book, came out recently. Chapter 15 of that book, he talks about the strange work of God. He's drawing on Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan. They talk about the strange work of God. And what they say, and therefore what he says, and what we'll say here, God's love is what we could call a natural attribute of God that's got so many problems to even use those terms, but we're just going to use it right now. It's a natural attribute, meaning you don't have to draw it out. It's not a response. It just comes out of God's being freely everywhere. Trinitarian love, and it just overflows naturally. That's who God is. He is love, and it comes out. It flows. It doesn't require something, and then it loves. It just flows out. God's wrath is not like that. That's why his love was always there from eternity past. His wrath is a response to moral evil. 
Therefore, there's a difference between God's love and wrath. They're both attributes of God equally. It's not less wrathful, but they're different. And the way that Edwards and Goodwin and Ortland puts it is they say it is a strange work. We could call it almost a secondary attribute, primary, secondary. There's problems with that too, but in the sense it's just different than his love. Here's Lamentations 3.33. says, God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That simply means you, when you think of God, should not think first of a wrathful God. You should think of a wrathful God. Do not think first of a wrathful God. That's what Westboro Baptist Church does. To them, God is mainly wrathful, and then there's also love. You should think of God as God is loving. That's his inclination. His natural inclination is to be gracious, is to be loving, and it's only as he encounters the rejection of himself, moral evil, that then wrath is his right response. But it is important to point out, that's even why for us, God's wrath is a hard doctrine, because we recognize Even when God gives wrath, it's not from his heart, meaning it's not, I love to crush, destroy, I love this naturally, and I'll be nice, but I love to destroy. It's not like that. God's not the villain, but God will respond rightly to sin. So God's wrath is right, and it is a strange work or secondary doctrine, if you will, or attribute. Let's finish up now by applying this, and we'll be done here. What use is the wrath of God? There are a lot, but we're just going to apply it in this way, your urgency. Jude 23 says, save some by snatching them out of the fire. That there's fire is because there's wrath from God. And the call is save some by snatch. You see the picture there? Going into the fire, snatch them out. Not like, hey, don't do that. Snatch them out of the fire. My child's going to try to touch the stove when it's on. I'm not going to say, oh, Alarm, let me explain. That's not a good idea. Here are the reasons. Instead, you just grab him and you pull him away. There's a sense of urgency. The reason that we as Christians have a sense of urgency in this life, we're assured of a happy ending for ourselves, but we're not assured of that for others. And there is a day of wrath coming. And therefore, it should compel us into a sense of urgency, a snatching of people out of the fire. My habit recently has been when I'm at the gym, after I work out, go try to sit in the steam room. (laughs) I don't know how you do it. It's suffocating. But trying to do that, supposedly good for me or something. So I'm sitting in there for a few minutes. And while I do, I've made it my habit that that's when I pray for lost friends. Because it's simply a reminder to me that if I'm not sharing with my lost friends, They don't trust in Christ. That as unpleasant as the steam room is, as choking and stuff, I'm going to leave here in 10 minutes. And those who don't trust in Christ experience something far worse forever with no relief. It produces in me a sense of urgency. The wrath of God gives us urgency in evangelism. Returning to Marcy. Marcy, one day, is on Instagram She finds a link to a sermon by Paul Washer. And it's about the coming judgment. And God uses that quite a lot. She had been growing cold and stale and her interests had been divided. She'd felt guilty, but her input was mostly just unbelieving friends. That just woke her up. What am I thinking? 
she realized there really is a wrath to come. There really is a day of judgment. And she loves the people she works with and she can't be apathetic about them. It's not like automatically they go to heaven because they're decent people. She knows what the Bible teaches, that there's no decent people, that all of us need Jesus Christ to intercede for us against God's wrath. It's our only hope. Otherwise, why did Jesus ever die on a cross if we don't need a cross for salvation? And so this is starting to wake her up. But of course, it's been so long, she's terrified to bring the subject up. But you know the first thing Marcy does? She gets on her knees and she prays, God, please forgive me for being so apathetic and not caring. And please provide for me an opportunity to share Christ and deliverance from the wrath to come with my coworkers. The amazing thing about praying that kind of prayer, you know it if you're a Christian. God always answers it. <laughs> I mean, does he ever not? And she starts to have openings where she can begin to share Jesus. Yes, it's awkward. She'll admit it. But she starts to be able to talk about sin, about God, about death. She's a nurse. About Christ. She begins to have opportunities to start sharing these things with her coworkers. She realizes even for herself how foolish it's been to prioritize other things over him. She gets plugged into the church she's going to. She says, I don't know, if this is the church, this is the church. She plugs into it, gets into fellowship for her own safety, realizes her perseverance in the faith I mean, her salvation, that's part of that. It's her perseverance. If she's saved, she will persevere. Therefore, she plugs in there, and then her urgency toward others increases. She realizes God may not have called her right now to be a missionary to the ends of the earth or the 1040 window, but she definitely will have her arms around those who are near her. If they will, like Spurgeon said, if they will go into hell, they will go with her arms around their ankles, and not one of them will go unprayed for. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would use this fact about yourself to work in us a real urgency, that the gospel that we preach week after week, it's more important than what we read on the news during the week. It's more important than the state of the economy or international politics. It's more important than any of those things. It is you, God, promising that you will one day Send your son. The whole earth will be judged by him. And only those who are in him will escape your right, just wrath. Thank you for giving us a gospel, good news, that we can be in him. Because of the cross, we can be spared. Please help us not selfishly to hold this close to ourselves and throw our lives away on hobbies or other interests, but I pray that this would be primary to us, that you have left us here to make you known, and to invite others to the same salvation we enjoy. So please help us to remember and not forget that you are a loving God and also a God of wrath, and judgment will come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.